everybody um, in principle wants football to be welcoming for everyone and want every Man United supporter to feel like they should be uh, allowed to go there. And welcome to a very special episode of the United Podcast. I'm Sam Homewood and with me is... Zara Connolly. Now, United and Proud is a special one-off episode looking into the links that United and the City of Manchester has with the LGBTQ plus community. It's a celebration of all things football, Manchester and inclusivity. It is. And usually we do these podcasts sat in a specific location that's relevant to what we're doing or the player that we're speaking to. But today we're out in Manchester City Centre. We've got Sam and James with us from Rainbow Devils. Guys, say Hello. 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 That was nice in tandem. It was in unison, yeah. I enjoyed that. Uh, and we've also got Josh from Manchester Walking Tours. Josh, tell us please a bit about who you are and what you're going to bring to our day. Yeah, uh, my name is Josh. Uh, I run LGBT Manchester Walking Tours and also like tips-based walking tours that run each day. And what we're doing today, we're going to walk around the gay village, look at the pubs, murals, back streets, sort of learn more about Manchester's LGBT history. It's linked to diversity, linked to Manchester United. Uh, whatever comes into my head and I think you might be vaguely interested in. The first question, though, obviously, is we know that Sam and James are United fans because they're here from Rainbow Devils. What about you, Josh? Yeah, I mean, one of my earliest memories, I grew up in Salford, um, and I remember the 1999, the entire street going absolutely bananas. Uh, and me, like, sat at the top of the stairs because I wasn't allowed downstairs to watch it because I was, must have been six. Then me rushing down uh, when the first goal went in, and then, um, obviously, then I was allowed to go downstairs because no one cared anymore about what was going on. Um, so that was, yeah, that's one of my earliest memories. So I was a massive United fan for my teenage years, but... I don't know what happened like 18 19 went to university came out and um but i feel like today i've i'm gonna rekindle my love of the club uh with 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 you all here i mean listen mate once a red always a red this is gonna happen today i can feel it i did used to live next door to the city stadium so just by proxy i could hear every goal that went in um don't know if that's gonna hurt you too much saying that i mean the, the question is did you celebrate uh, this is awkward, let's move it on now. <laughs> uh, hello, how are we all? Yeah, good. 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 Yeah, I'm grand. So are we all familiar with the, uh, the, the history of Manchester? No. No, okay, good. That makes it easier. Um, I'm sure you'll, you'll be aware it's an industrial city. Um, it's based on making textiles. It was sort of the shock city of the 19th century. Like within 100 years, this area goes from a population of like 10 to 15,000 to 100 years later, nearly 2.5 million people. And yet, all these people coming together very quickly meant there wasn't a um, there wasn't a great deal of space. Um, you know, the, the city was very much overcrowded, which kind of begs the question: like, why are you talking about overcrowded cities on an LGBT walking tour? And the reason is like before industrialization, you really might have been the only gay in your rural village, but suddenly in a city, you're surrounded by people with similar thoughts and ideas. You might talk. You might become friends, lovers, ex-lovers. Your lovers might become friends with your ex-lovers. And, like, and, and, and over time, a community is, is born. But for a community to exist, uh, you need space. Like You need physical space. And therefore, space becomes a bit of a battleground. Which brings me on to a really good story about something that took place in Hume in 1880. We're all familiar with Hume? Like the, yeah. the area? Um, it's a bit too far to walk. It's sort of like, what, 25 minutes that way? Um... Yeah, there was a temperance hall in Hume, so it's like an like a alcohol-free space that was rented out by a group of men in 1880 that called themselves the Pawnbrokers Assistance Association. 
already seems a bit suspicious that the pawnbroker's assistants have an association. And not just that, but they have an annual ball. Um, so, yeah, the, the chief constable at the time, Jerome Caminada, uh, didn't believe this was a, a, a ball for pawnbrokers. And so he sat on a building just behind the temperance hall. He stood on the top of it, looking down to waiting, waiting to see what would happen. So what did he see? He saw 46 men enter at 9pm. They drew all the blinds, they closed the curtains, apart from the back window, so the chief constable could see him. They dressed as, all were dressed, dressed as women. Uh, not just any women, mostly Elizabethan women, because that was really in fashion at the time, the Elizabethan era. The chief constable said he saw Scottish dancing, can-can dancing. So this is all like, you know, very kind of shocking activity. You know, they, they publish this in the newspapers as if to say, this is scandal, this is shocking, isn't this terrible, this is vice. But of course, up and down the country, people read this and go, wow, in Manchester, if you want to go party, that's the place to go, that's the place to, to go find vice. And it becomes a bit of a, an advertisement and there's maybe the beginnings of this area uh, and the beginning of Manchester as being known nationally as a sort of like an inclusive city for LGBT people. So let's just let's guess um, what the who, who these people are. Do we know who this is? Turing. Uh, yep, this is Alan Turing. Let's start then with, with Alan. I'll tell you a bit about Alan. The quick version, because there's, there's so much you could say. But uh, born 1912, born in London. Um, he really came up with the idea of a kind of modern computing machine in an essay in 1936. World War II, he helped to crack the Enigma codes, the Nazi Enigma codes, helping to shorten the length of World War II. And then he came to Manchester. Um, he was part of the team that built the world's first computer that could program information and also store information. It's effectively the world's first modern computer. Its name was Manchester Mark I, nicknamed Baby. That was a joke because it was huge. Um, and it was also here in Manchester he developed his ideas on artificial intelligence, most famously with the imitation game or the Turing test, where he said, a computer, we can only call it intelligent if the computer can convince us into thinking it is a human. Which I used to think, yeah, never. It's never going to happen. And, uh, and then it did. He was gay, he was prosecuted for being gay, um... And so he was given the punishment of a series of injections of synthetic estrogen. The idea was that they would chemically castrate him. Uh, that's not what happened. Instead, he became uh, very depressed. And on the 8th of June, 1954, he took his own life. A man who helped invent the computer, helped to bring World War II to an end, but was treated in such a way that he felt the need to take his own life. Let's maybe go to this one. So it's not Lily Savage. Fufu Lamar, exactly. Uh, so Fufu Lamar was born as Frank Lamar over in Ancoats. He was the son of a um, like a scrap metal man. He was a budding boxer as a teenager, um, quite a good one. And then he started to do cabaret most Fridays at the Ancoats Arms. So his dad thought, oh great, Frank's doing a bit of um, a bit of cabaret. Let's go see how they might do a couple of swing numbers American standards uh, no when he went along he saw Frank dressed as Fufu Lamar so his dad chucked a bar stool at him and didn't talk to him again until Fufu Lamar became a multi-millionaire and strangely enough uh, they managed to reconcile also quite eccentric Fufu Lamar used to have a Rolls Royce 
with the number plate Fufu11 on the back. And he'd drive through town during the day just giving people lifts because um, his bar was not open yet. And then in the evening, he had quite a few bars. The most famous one was Fufu's Palace. Um, yeah, in the evening then would, would, would perform. Uh, yeah, Fufu's Palace, it was sort of like the, the favourite bar of the Manchester United team in the 1990s. Which is just such a wonderful kind of oil and water in my head. Uh, and also at his, um, at his funeral, it was Sir Alex Ferguson, one of his best mates, that read out the eulogy. Yes, I'm Sam Danson and I'm a committee member for Rainbow Devils. Hi, my name's James Bull um, and I'm one of the members of the Rainbow Devils committee. I grew up in, um, in a, a bit of a um, rural area outside of Manchester um, and there really wasn't much going on there at all. Um, so any time we needed to do anything, we'd go to Manchester. From the moment that I could talk, I was a Man United fan and so that was always an extra incentive to go there. And it was just, it always just struck me as such um, such a busy, diverse, uh, interesting area where there's always things going on. I think Manchester's a really diverse and welcoming city and, you know, there's so many different immigrant communities um, and, and all sorts of different groups of people that have contributed to Manchester. Uh, and I think uh, that's one of the really special things about it as a place. I knew that when I was getting older and I wanted to, um, I think, like, understand really who I was I was really getting that question of being like oh who am I is this really like I felt really alienated because I was like feeling more and more different from people that I was growing up around and obviously I think one of the key things there is the sexuality side of it and even though I didn't realize at the time I knew I needed to put myself in a different place surrounded myself with different people and so when I moved to Manchester that that's uh, that was the obvious choice to move there and um, and and a really I just felt myself like grow as a person every year and and um, feel more normal, more validated, more um, and and just like love from so many different places. So yeah, I used to play a little bit of football. I was rubbish, and um, you know, it was it was definitely something that I was into around that age. Um, I remember visiting Old Trafford when I was ten uh, with my mum, but. It's, it's quite a strange process, I think, realising that you, you're gay because it's not something that you bank on growing up. Um, it's something that I think you spend a bit of time being sure that that's the case. Uh, there's nothing really you can do about it. And I think, you know, obviously in that situation, at some point, you're going to have to come out and uh, or not. But if you decide that you are going to come out, I think naturally you start to think, where are my allies going to be? Um, and at the time, you know, again, it definitely wasn't the only factor, but I think you know, football was a very different place. My experience of playing football was that homophobic language was quite complex. And, um, you know, I think that the that it was around that time as well, Justin Fashion, who committed suicide, I could, that was very visible. Um, so I think I just kind of naturally over a period of time sort of distanced myself from it a little bit, but kind of got back into it a couple of years ago and um, came back to... Old Trafford came to Old Trafford as a spectator at a match the first time at the um, FA Youth Cup final. Saw the uh, Rainbow Devils banner and uh, that sends quite a powerful message. And I knew quite a few sort of friends who were into football, but none that supported United. So I thought uh, it'd be good to, to, to go and meet some other, other LGBT uh, United fans, which was awesome. So uh, yeah, it's good to be back. 
yes, yeah, so my relationship with football, uh, it was a little bit on and off. I never really articulated it in my mind as to, to why that might be. There were times when I was really into football um, and, and that was that. was that, And it was very simple as a child. But then um, as I got older, I started to kind of um, distance myself from football. But then uh, I kind of like threw everything into it after that. And I think it's because in my head I was like feeling not normal and feeling like there was something different. And for me, like the solution was, okay, we'll throw myself into everything that does feel like it's conventional and it's normal and it's and it's whatever and it, and it that didn't really uh work obviously because that's denying a huge part of yourself that's trying to just fit in and be someone different and then I, I became a bit confused then because once I did start to realize my sexuality I started to think well okay I've got to I've got to kind of separate those two things separate those two people and like if I'm ever going to watch football it's not an LGBT thing it's not um, it's me just sort of hiding that bit of myself and just, uh, or not even hiding, just avoiding mentioning it or whatever and just going to the, the pub or the, the stadium. And then when, uh, yeah, when Rainbow Devils came along, that was uh, a big turning point for me because it was the first time I was sat in a pub with a bunch of people and realised that I wasn't actually hiding who I was. I wasn't changing my personality. I wasn't... Um, avoiding telling them about where I went out on a night out last weekend or something. Um, and that felt it felt really powerful, actually. The experience at Old Trafford's been really positive. I think um, it's a fantastic atmosphere in this stadium. It's, you know, if, if you're there to support the team, it doesn't really matter who you are. I think people are very welcoming. Never had any issues. Um, however, at the same time, you know, I have heard things, and you do hear things in the stands um, still, that um, either like homophobic language or racist language it does happen it's a tiny tiny minority of, of, of fans I think but you know I think the impact of that when you hear it you do sort of think oh they're talking about me there's a little bit of it's it is a, it's, it's alienating it doesn't necessarily sort of shatters to the core of your being but it's uh, it's an alienating experience to to hear that uh, and um, I think there's still a little bit of a way to go to to eliminate that from the game Um but yeah, I think um, experience of supporting the, the team and coming to games at Old Trafford has been really positive. It just takes uh, communication with with sports groups like Rainbow Devils and the club and um, other fan groups just to really kind of create one one voice and one and, and one collective aim. And I think that everybody um, in principle wants football to be welcoming for everyone. They want every Man United supporter to feel like they, they should be uh, allowed to go there community is massively important i mean um community is what does give us that sense of belonging but also allows us to achieve more than we can on our own it's about thing, finding the things that we have in common and you know building an understanding with each other so i think community is massively important and obviously you know it's a big big part of football as well um i think um that that there's a real there is a good kind of community sense of spirit i think at old trafford and um, there's every part of manchester is is in that stadium you know um the stadium uh, fan base is, di- is as diverse as the city is. I think that um, regardless of what their situation is, um, if they're um, if they're LGBT, if they're not sure if they're LGBT, or if they're just wanting um, a supportive, inclusive group to go along to and um, get involved with, um, I think it's um, I think it's, it's 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 a great thing to exist. Having uh, having Rainbow Devils and having those socials and um, that community can really boost um your 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 feeling of um of belonging in, in the club 
and feel like you can be completely yourself. And I think anybody will benefit from that, regardless of who you are. So we're in the um, Manchester Pride is is huge. Um, so the Pride's parade's been going since 1988. Um, brings thousands of people from across Manchester to watch it. And uh, this is our second year of having a, uh, a presence on, on that parade. So I think that's really powerful. I mean, that parade's got everybody from, you know, um, from from doctors and nurses to um, people working in the media to people working in the armed forces people working in all sorts of different occupations I think uh, who were LGBT and I think that um, that message not just occupations obviously there's, we're a supporters club but I think having that message that um, your sexuality needn't be a barrier to achieving your potential is a really important one there is a protest element to pride as well in terms of um, you know, fighting for, for equality for LGBT people, but I think it is definitely and also a big celebration of LGBT lives. Um, and it's, it's fantastic that as a supporters club got the opportunity to be part of that this year. Homosexuality became illegal around the time of Henry VIII. Henry VIII did not hate gays, he hated Catholics. Uh, and the one way that he could prose- prosecute Catholic monks, um, the only way was through uh, buggery, um, i.e. relations between two adults without the intention of having a child, usually used against gay men. Um, and so, yeah, by bringing the, the buggery law into the, like, the state's domain, it meant that he could prosecute loads of monks and take their gold. Um, so that was the case for... Um, few centuries until in the late 19th century so after the the, the, the ball in Hume uh, you had the Labashare amendment uh, and that meant that buggery was no longer illegal but gross indecency was illegal which is even more sort of like kind of confusing like what does gross indecency mean um, Oscar Wilde was was prosecuted under the um, gross indecencies act Alan Turing sat over there uh, was prosecuted under the same amendment um, it wasn't until 1967 that homosexuality was decriminalised in England and Wales. Uh, but there's loads of caveats to that law. Do, does anyone remember what was in this spot? No idea. No idea. Was it, trans it was a trans memorial. Yeah, we are going to get a new memorial, more permanent one soon. There's a great story though that relates to the trans memorial about a man called Harry Stokes that was born in 1799. So. A long time ago. Uh, Harry was born uh, biologically female, um, was female until her, his early teens, um, when went about his life as, as Harry Stokes. He was a bricklayer. He met his first wife, who he was with for 20 years. And then after 20 years, Harry thought, you know what? You're not for me anymore. I want a divorce. Got a divorce. She wasn't happy. You know, she was really quite angry that she'd been betrayed by Harry. So she went to the police and she said, did you know Harry is not the man that you think he is? So they did quite an intimate examination um, and it was declared to the press, no, Harry Stokes is not the man you think he is. And it was a sensation. It was all around Manchester. People were talking about Harry Stokes, the man, woman of Manchester. The thing is, though, like any scandal, you know, kind of two weeks as a big up in arms and then the circus moves on. And uh, everyone sort of forgets about it and moves on with their lives. Harry meets his second wife. They run a pub um, near towards Salford. uh, And they're together for 20 years until the day he dies. And then once more, when he dies, there's another shock. Like, did you know Harry Stokes is not the man you think he is? And of course, by this point, 
everyone sort of says, yeah, we know, we've, we've, we've done this before. Uh, and it's just such a great story because it's so old as well that articulates, you know, trans people were here, are here, will be here, uh, which is why I think it's fantastic that the trans, it's the National Trans Memorial is, is here in Manchester. And Manchester also hosts uh, the National Trans Celebration event called Sparkle every year, uh, which is free to attend and has like, great, sort of, quite well-known uh, LGBT acts as part of the festival. The Rochdale Canal is called the Rochdale Canal because it runs 32 miles from West Yorkshire to Manchester via Rochdale. The Rochdale Canal, hence this is called Canal Street. The pub, um, yeah, this is the new Union Hotel. Uh, it was originally, though, way before then, was called the Union Hotel and it's thought to be the second oldest surviving gay pub in the country after the Royal Vauxhall Tavern in, in, in London. The Bees... Um, I'm sure you all know, so the, the, the work of honeybee is the symbol of Manchester. Since industrial times, the idea is that, you know, Mancunians, we all work together in our hive and produce things that are as sweet as honey. But I'd say that more than ever, it was after the uh, Manchester bombing at the Ariana Grande concert, when it really became a sort of, I guess, a symbol of like solidarity and strength within the city. Um, so yeah, hence why on the side of the new Union Hotel pub, uh, there are 22 bees to represent the 22 fatalities of that attack. Okay, the street artist's name uh, is Axe. Um, really, so Axe is a Vietnamese Mancunian um, street artist that does really recognisable works. Like you'll see, there was one of George Floyd. There was a nurse during the some of the lockdowns. He's actually a Manchester City fan. But because we're in an inclusive city and we're all understanding of the different teams, well, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, he also did Marcus Rashford um, to acknowledge his work in terms of free school meals during some of the lockdowns. You, you might not believe this fact, it's kind of difficult to believe. Uh, but Manchester's linguistically the third most diverse city on earth. So after London and New York, there are more languages spoke in this city than, than, than any other, you know, well, after two other cities. Um, and this has sort of become a really important, I guess, part of the landscape of the city. So, for example, a moment ago, um, I talked about the Hacienda, about Acid House. And that was really important to the gay village, right? The Hacienda and uh, the Hacienda and Acid House and those gay nights were important to helping this area take off. But actually, the Hacienda has a lot to owe to the um, sort of Caribbean community um, from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s that brought over um, like their sound system parties. Uh, and also they brought over sort of black techno music from Detroit and also um, House from Chicago. Uh, so you know, that was a massive uh, part of Manchester's kind of... The Manchester people talk about, the Hacienda, has its roots much deeper, but also like much further afield. And then, yeah, you've got over in Chinatown, uh, they're mostly um, Cantonese, like they're mostly from, from Hong Kong and Taiwan. First come in the 1960s. Um, by ratio, you know, we have more um, ethnically Chinese people in Manchester by ratio to kind of population than any other city in the UK. And again, kind of makes a huge contribution uh, to the city culturally, such as with the Chinese Contemporary Arts Centre. Also the Imperial Arch, you know, in Chinatown. Um, that was Europe's first Imperial Arch, 1986. The Liverpool has the bigger one. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't mention that. I don't know. Is that tied to football? I'm not, I'm not too sure. Everything's tied to football. <laughs> but also just going right, so go right further back, right? Go right to the beginning of the 19th century. 
There was no one from Manchester, 10 to 15,000 people. No one is from this city. Uh, it was people like kind of rushing from all over to the city, you know, Jews from the east of Europe, Italians, Irish. And um, by them sort of clashing with one another, create really sort of great, interesting, exciting ideas. The best idea has to be there was an Italian man over in Ancoats um, that used to sell his ice cream by the spoonful. So he'd dip his spoon in, hand it out. It's probably good quality Sheffield steel, so he'd take his spoon back, dip it in his ice cream, hand it out. If you keep doing that, people are using the same spoon, people are going to get cholera, his customers are going to die. You know, that's not a very kind of a great business model. So he has this idea instead to sell his ice cream on a bit of biscuit instead. In other words, the world's first ice cream cone was patented in Manchester. Which I just think for all the cities first, that has to be one of the best. So when we're talking about so like the importance of immigration and diversity and inclusion, um, you know, without that kind of inclusion and diversity, we wouldn't have the ice cream cone. This is the Trade Union Congress building. Like Man- Manchester's history, if you do any walk tour of Manchester, it's generally kind of a political history walk tour. Like you'll hear about uh, the suffragettes, you'll hear about the Communist Manifesto, you'll hear, hear about Western vegetarianism, you'll hear about the Peterloo Massacre, the Chartists, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and also, yeah, the, the trade union movement. Um, and the, the, the first Trade Union Congress building uh, meeting was inside of this building. It was also inside of this building that a group of people got together and had this idea. Uh, where we should work for five days and then have two days off. In other words, as if the ice cream cone wasn't good enough, the weekend was invented inside this building. So next time you're raising a beer or at a football game, uh, you've got Manchester and and this building to to thank. Um, Why was I talking about this? It's because it was leading up to talking about a man called Alan Horsfall. You remember earlier I said about decriminalisation of homosexuality you know, it became legal in 1967, um, but it absolutely did not. Like, there were so many caveats. It was only if you were over the age of 21. The age of consent for heterosexuals was 16. It was only outside the armed forces uh, until about 2001. So what I'm saying is 1967 was in no way um, decriminalisation. And it was here in Manchester that a man called Alan Horsfall, with the sort of kind of coming from that socialist political background, he set up a group... Um, called the Campaign for Homosexual Equality here in Manchester. And it was really the beginning of the British gay rights movement, uh, the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, starting here in Manchester. But you know, the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, it sounds like they were sort of picketing or rioting or, you know, kind of organising massive marches. And really, it was just um, it was just a social network. Um, you know, it was just a group of people that like they give newsletters to each other and say next week there's a cheese and wine night next week we're doing a cinema night next week uh, we're gonna there's a visit to Harrogate um, there was there was these groups these campaign of homosexual quality groups were set up in towns and cities all around the country they'd go and visit each other but I guess like it's a bit like with Rainbow Devils it's actually something really political in just people getting to getting together getting to know each other creating those sort of networks understanding that there's people sort of like very similar to you up and down the country um, and by creating a British gay rights identity you know starting here in Manchester when you get to the 80s and you're dealing with the AIDS crisis or you're dealing with section 28 it meant that you know gays and lesbians up and down the country were already uh, prepared to, to deal with those challenges 
Do we know who this is? Yes, Emmeline Pankhurst, the founder of the WSPU, the Women's Social and Political Union, a.k.a. the suffragettes, who use more kind of Bolshevik tactics to gain attention to the female suffrage movement. That was successful, partially successful in 1918, when women over the age of 30 who owned property were granted the vote. But for all women, it took until 1928. We will get back to the last part of the walking tour soon, after we hear from some of our first team players, Leah Galton, Christian Eriksen, Martha Thomas and Marcus Rashford tell us what they love about the city of Manchester and also they share their thoughts on Manchester Pride. Let's start with Leah Galton. I've lived in Manchester for a while now, about three years, and I live pretty near the city, so it is a very welcoming community, obviously, and I think it's nice because it's a city where everyone is just themselves. No one really looks at you in a funny way as if, like, what are you doing kind of thing. So everyone just expresses themselves, which is the nicest part about it. People are welcoming. People are in always feels like people are in a good mood. Uh, I love Manchester. I really enjoyed it. I came from London where it was a bit, obviously, bigger of a city. Um, and I think that's what I love about Manchester. It's a bit tight-knit, but you still have a fantastic city vibe um, with great communities surrounding it. You know, for me, it's obviously, obviously home, so... I've um, got a lot of family, a lot of, lot of friends here, so it's an, um, it was a nice place to, to grow up as a kid, so um, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't change it for, for anything. Favourite thing about the city has got to be the food choices, the coffee shops. Um, I think I find myself in the city most weekends when we get time off and go and have a nice coffee with my fiancé and just chill out and hang out. Um, probably the football, to be honest. You know, the rivalry you've got between United and City, um, the sense of community that's here. And, you know, you walk around and anywhere you look, you're seeing a United shirt or seeing people playing or watching football. And I love that. Um, I think I went to Pride when I first moved here in 2021. And um, you just feel that sense of, I don't know how to explain it other than Pride, um, to be a part of that community and see, you know, people of all walks of life get involved and really... Yeah, it's huge. It's really important. Um, until everyone is seen as equal, I think these kind of events are important. And yeah, I think Manchester's a great, a great city, and there'll be a, a big show up for the pride. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very important thing. But obviously, also all the the pride's always a big parties. Uh, and I remember even from when I was in Amsterdam, it was always a big, uh, big pride on the on the canals and everything. I think it's huge because I think obviously I know a lot of people that have struggled with obviously that area of their life and I think if you can be in a group that's accepting and like it's kind of welcoming and it's just nice to have them people around you and they obviously know what you're going through because some people might have gone through the same thing so obviously we just need to keep supporting that and and be open to talking about it. We as athletes we're also people too um, and we I think will thrive the most when we feel we're part of something bigger than ourselves Um, and to feel like we fit in and we belong is, is massive and it helps us play our best you know people play their best when they're happy and if they are feeling like they really fit in they're going to be happier so for us you know inclusivity is important um, equality is important and we'll keep pushing on those boundaries as footballers to try and help the community and the rest of the world keep up on that pace Right, okay, let's go back to the walking tour. Yeah, let's go back to 1982 when you got a sort of left-wing insurgence um, in Manchester City Council. So suddenly you've got, Manchester's got this left-wing council. The country has this right-wing government. So Manchester City Council wants to find any way they can to upset Margaret Thatcher. 
One of the easiest ways to do this was to celebrate the gays and theys. So they go to a man called Paul Fairweather, who became the, the gay men's representative on the council, and said, what can we do to support you all? I think the council were hoping that it was going to be some rainbow bunting. Um, instead, he said, well, no, what we really need is a gay community centre. Uh, but eventually they did it, and it says it here usefully in 1983. I mean, there's been multiple incarnations of it. Um, this is the first time you had a place that's not just about drinking. It's not just about um, kind of going out and losing your mind. Is where the council can talk to LGBT people, um, say can talk to activists or students, um, and just having this kind of collaboration between lots of different people, like having that kind of conversation, meant that incredible like, ideas and events took place afterwards. So, for example, a really good example of this was over in Salford, there was a social worker heterosexual female social worker one of uh, the, the young people that she worked with left care was homophobically bullied and then took his own life so she didn't know where to go she knew that this should never happen again but she, she didn't know where to go to make sure it didn't happen again because the gay community centre was there she went along she said what can we do like how can we stop this from happening and so she started or they all started the Albert Kennedy Trust or the AKT which is still running today there's other organisations like the National uh, Parents of Lesbians and Gays started the Gay Community Centre. The council, it was the first town hall in Europe to have the rainbow flag from the top of it. The first lesbian mayor in the UK was here in Manchester. Uh, they gave advertising revenues to local gay press. But I'd say the biggest thing that they did, the most important thing they did, like these different groups coming together, was to organise the anti-Section 28 demonstration. Section 28, it was a Conservative government bylaw that prevented local authorities from promoting homosexuality as sort of an acceptable lifestyle, which suddenly meant that uh, projects uh, were, were, were defunded, uh, books were taken out of schools, uh, and there was no LGBT education within schools. You know, it still has hangovers today, like the way that the LGBT issues are talked about within schools. Because the Gay Community Centre was there, because there was such a great relationship between the, co the council and other stakeholders, they were able to organise the national uh, anti-Section 28 demonstration. It's still today, it's the biggest ever um, LGBT uh, demonstration in the UK to have been held, like a kind of single issue. My friend uh, Stephen, he's, he's a playwright, he talks about coming up to Manchester for the first time for that demonstration. This is the time when you just didn't hold hands you know, with, with, with your same-sex partner. So he said he's on the train and like everyone's just like, you know, kind of just looking at their feet, waiting to get to Manchester for two hours. When he sees a lesbian couple holding hands and he sort of thinks, well, if they're holding hands, then I'm going to hold hands. So him and his boyfriend hold hands. There's one by one, like the whole train is holding hands with each other. Before they get to Manchester Piccadilly, there's a huge rainbow flag at the front of the station. They really feel like they've arrived. You know, this, this demonstration makes national news. It's the day that Ian McKellen came out uh, and makes people all around the country know Manchester as a sort of inclusive and, and really gay city uh, and helps to inspire a lot of that kind of nightlife and culture that I talked about a little bit earlier on. Have we been to Lincoln Square? There's a big statue of Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Which often begs the question, why is there a statue of Abraham Lincoln in Manchester? Um, 1861 and civil war breaks in the United States of America. And you, have, you have two teams... To the north, you have the Union team. 
They are led by Abraham Lincoln and broadly speaking, they're anti-slavery. Like broadly speaking, they're abolitionists. To the south, you have the Confederate States that were pro-slavery because their economy was dependent on enslaved people picking cotton. Good quality cotton, cheap cotton, the leading exporters at that time of cotton. Who do you think was using the most cotton? Yeah, like over half the world's, um, you know, finished textiles using cotton came out of this city or came from Lancashire more, more broadly. So basically by Manchester buying most of this cotton and then selling it, the Confederates selling it to Manchester, this economic relationship is helping to maintain slavery in North America. So therefore, 1861, Civil War breaks, you think surely then Manchester will come down on the side of the Confederates because Manchester needs Confederates as much as the Confederates needs Manchester. But strangely enough, that doesn't happen. A bunch of mill workers, as well as mill owners, meet up at the Free Trade Hall on, over on Peter Street and they declare that Manchester will no longer accept any cotton that has been picked by enslaved people. On the one hand, you go, you know, well done, Manchester. That was the right thing to do. You've come down on the right side of history. It also should be said that um, it wasn't the whole of the UK that had the same idea. Westminster was waiting to see who was going to win. Liverpool was very much pro-Confederacy, you know, being a kind of a, a, a port city. Um, and it's also much easier said than it is put into practice. If you stop buying that cotton, well, you need cotton from somewhere. They go over to Egypt, the Middle East, India becomes a lot more expensive. It means that a lot of industry here in Lancashire just, just comes to a standstill. People lose their jobs. It's the beginning of the Lancashire cotton famine. And it lasted for, the, for three years, as long as the war did. But of course, the good to come out of that is that the Confederates could no longer sell the cotton. Their economy began to collapse. The Union states were able to more quickly conquer the Confederate states, create the United States of America once more, and ultimately abolish slavery in North America. Now, I'm not saying that Manchester was directly responsible for bringing down slavery in North America. I dare say, you know, that the story is slightly more complicated. Also, I would never like to apologise on behalf of a city which did help to maintain slavery for 120 years. But I do think it gives you a good sense of the city's kind of optimistic, kind of more progressive politic. It's quite an important part of the city's identity. Abraham Lincoln wrote a letter to the people of Manchester in which he said... There has been no greater sacrifice by any man nor Christian nation. Big words. Uh, and to show his utmost gratitude, Abraham Lincoln also sent us a statue of himself. Interesting kind of also part of this story is the... Um, does anyone know the tune of the, the, the battle song of the Republic? So this is, this is the tune, um, they, so the Union soldiers would sing at the Confederate soldiers... Um, which is quite funny then um, because obviously with Liverpool siding with the Confederates and Manchester siding on the Union States you know the, the use of that tune actually dates far back uh, and yeah I mean it's kind of telling people from Liverpool that we were on the right side of history
so we have just been having a good old wander around Manchester. What did you make of this phenomenal tour that we learned plenty of information on? Yeah, it was fantastic, wasn't it? It was um, it was really informative. There's certain things that I was already aware of and other things that I wasn't. Um, I didn't realise the Alex Ferguson connections um, and the first team back in the 90s, actually. Did you? Yeah, I knew, I knew that bit. Um, Carl, actually, from Rainbow Devils mentioned that. Oh, um, <laughs> I think he like, bumped into them at some point at Fufu Lamar's place. Um, but yeah, really interesting tour. It's always good to like learn more about the city you live in. Yeah, as the only person who has no proper link to the north, everything was new for me and was really interesting. But I find it fascinating that you're also learning stuff as well. Yeah, um, I think that's the thing. Sometimes, if you even if you live in a city, it's like you, you don't always take the time to wander around and look at things. Um, and like today, because we we're on that tour, I even spotted like certain old grand doors or buildings that I was like, oh, I've never spotted that before, and I've walked down here so, so many times. And it, it's good to actually um, have an excuse to take that time out and um, and really stop and think. To be honest, it's good to learn some stories to tell people when they come to visit as well. Oh, I'm like, going to forget them all. <laughs> in my mind. The good news is, if you do, this podcast will exist. You can just listen actually, back. Actually, I'll just I'll just put um, I'll bring, bring my parents here and put the headphones in and just go listen to this and uh, we'll wander around. Point them in the right direction. <laughs> I feel like that's going to get you some extra brownie points as well. I'm not going to lie. I hope so. <laughs> So I think after that we can agree that Manchester is probably, if not one of, the best place on earth. Oh, completely, yeah. Definitely. I think so. Definitely. Here in Benidorm. <laughs> and Eccles. <laughs> this is obviously the United podcast and we're running out of time. Let's get back to the football. What does the football club mean to you? How important has it been in your life? Why is it that you're drawn to Manchester United? Yeah, it's just um, it's just really really special. I think um, t- t- to be part of. Uh, it's weird that you, you decide which football club you support before you even really know how to talk. Um, and uh, I'm glad I made the right decision. Uh, great history, great club, um, and I think it's also just um, it's it's a club that um, when it's at its best, you can be really proud of it. And I think. Uh, yeah, it's just a lovely, lovely club. <laughs> I think I don't make it sound like a like a nana's home now or something. It's just a lovely place to be. Um, but uh, <laughs> it really is, to be honest. Um, I absolutely love it, and it's all I've ever known. 